Welcome back to the Blast From Our Past podcast, where we review movies and TV from our nostalgic younger days and do some recasting to what we think uh, we would want projects nowadays to look like with current actors. Today we're going to be talking about a movie and a TV show that I know we watched when we were kids and may not have been meant for us as kids, but we loved them. I would say mainly because of our dad. I kind of always associated this movie, Blues Brothers, and the TV show, The A-Team, watching them kind of just side by side whenever we were with dad. Yeah, it is something that he showed us and it was something that brought us together. And the Blues Brothers really speaks to me now as an adult because I'm a music teacher. I could listen to the movie, honestly, without having to watch it, just to listen to all of the good songs that happened throughout the whole thing. So let's just dive right into the Blues Brothers. Like you said, it was from 1980, directed by John Landis, who has a plethora of amazing movies under his belt. The characters started off from Saturday Night Live, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. It opens up on some sky shots of Chicago, just kind of set here we are in Chicago and a great very quiet no music scene where it's all just the ambient noise in a penitentiary where we see this character we don't see his face just kind of being let out of his uh, prison cell walking down the line Uh, and the first scene that we understand that this is going to be something funny is we get to the property manager played by Frank Oz. Amazing Frank Oz. Amazing Frank Oz, voice of Yoda, uh, voice of so many different puppets through our youth. Uh, And he's got... uh, One thing, before we kind of get into even further, I just want to say this movie is so chock full of lines that I know I personally quote. I've seen... I will say I've seen this movie at least once a year. Uh, It's one that I might be able to recite beat for beat just out of memory. I absolutely love this one so it's not going to be a shocker when i say i like the movie at the end of this yes i'm a huge fan of this movie and i have been for years so just re-watching it again uh, i'm kind of surprised just how many lines because i've seen it so many times i end up quoting and quoting and quoting and it's probably lines that people may not think are great lines but it's ones i just end up saying all the damn time there's lots of little funny moments and and little offbeat lines that stick with you in this movie Mm -hmm. sort of an aside joke that almost doesn't quite hit you right away and then you think about it and you're like oh oh man that was funny just subtle humor everywhere so we kind of get established who jake is with the jake tattoos on his fingers uh in just a little minute we'll see elwood and we establish uh with elwood's fingers that's how he how he gets introduced as well he's got tattoos of elwood on his hands but we're back still in the scene with the property manager and you get just this the start of these great lines one timex digital watch broken one unused prophylactic one soiled it, just funny little lines and uh, it's a small little scene from Frank Oz, but it's a memorable scene so early on. Yes, and there are a lot of little cameos, and some that I didn't even really know until much later when I went back and realized, oh, that's that person. We open the gates of the prison. Elwood is waiting outside for his brother, and we finally get to the... We cut from a wide to tight shot of the two of them, and music starts blaring. You get that little slow bit of the bump, 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 bump. And what I like about it is when you get to the close-up, it's not a close-up on the street. It's just a close-up with a white background. She caught the K 
is if to make them pop off the screen because they're all wear, they're wearing all black mm-hmm. and it's it is kind of I don't know I don't know if it's dusk or dawn it doesn't look like it's you know f- you know middle of the day yeah. when he's coming out so it, it does kind of help to all of a sudden cuts to this white background with the two of them and all of a sudden you go from what you know so far has been a somewhat funny sleepy little movie to oh we're here this is the movie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you get a funny little scene early, but like that's where it really starts. And when I started, I forgot how much was at the beginning before that start because you get that hit of the music, the big white bright lights behind them, uh, those tight shots, and the name cards of Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. So they embrace very quickly, get into the car, and a funny little line about just going back and forth about whatever this piece of shit car is that uh, that Elwood picks him up with. Where's the Cadillac? The Caddy. Where's the Caddy? The what? The Cadillac we used to have. The Bluesmobile. I traded it. Traded the Bluesmobile for this? No, for a microphone. A microphone? Okay, I can see that. You can tell right away that music is what these guys are about. And so he starts kind of blasting the the cop car and Elwood's like you don't like it no I don't like it and then he punches it as a bridge is separating and he jumps the gap that is the first inclination of not only is this a music movie this is a car movie yeah oh, it's definitely a car movie along with it and then kind of explains it on the way down of it's got a cop motor a 440 cubic inch plant it's got cop tires cop suspension cop shocks it's a model made before catalytic converters so it'll run good on regular gas of course john belushi's response to all that is fix the cigarette lighter of course but that jump over the bridge that is opening up is sets up like it's the first scene of oh this is going to be a ridiculous movie honestly mm-hmm. like Bridge was opening up super wide, and they somehow fly over it so easily. And you're like, okay, there's going to be something fantastic just in general with this movie. And that's yes, that's without. And I think there is definitely a almost a sense of the supernatural mm-hmm. in this movie. There is something supernatural about these two guys. Whether you really, you know, whether you just see it as sort of funny moments in the movie, there's definitely that almost supernatural presence. And and I think that's a. Th- Sort of the theme of the supernatural is something that plays out all the way through the movie, almost to the end. Yeah, I agree. And I think helped the movie a lot. Yes, I think it's a, it adds a lot of just fantasy and fun to it. Yeah. One problem I always had with that car jumping scene is they cut from the, the point where they leap off the one side and then they cut to the other side where you kind of see the whole car coming down. I can see the other side of the bridge, like <laughs> in that shot. Like it's it's... The cuts do not match. It is such a lack of continuity in my head. And my editor brain is like, no, 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 no. If, if it was today, I just mat that out. Just paint that out. That <laughs> pisses me off. But besides that, I don't really care. Yeah. Not a big deal. But there's always something that just one of those moments. It goes by fast enough that if you're focused on the car, you don't really notice it. Every time, though, I always look at the bridge and I'm be like, I see the other side of that bridge. That's not that far. I can jump that. <laughs> But still, anyway, so it sets up just like the, the fantasy ridiculousness that's about to come. And we get to the orphanage. We stop off at the orphanage. Jake doesn't want to go to the orphanage. We've learned that this is where, I guess, they grew up. And they want to help the orphanage in general. He promised that he would go see the penguin, as they call her, when he first gets out of prison. A formidable woman. Uh, Yes. I would not want to fuck with her if she was real. Mm-hmm. 
But this, there's also supernatural moments in the orphanage scene with the doors opening and closing on their own. Yes. So they go in and they have this hilarious scene where they go talk to the penguin and she's obviously this very intimidating person and she has them sit in these tiny desks and then they have to move their desks up just little subtle humor yes that you watch the more you watch it the more it's like god that's funny god that's funny until it's Mm -hmm. just like you laugh out loud every single time Mm -hmm. and they start (laughs) <laughs> saying all kinds of curse words and Jesus Christ this and and fuck penguin that and everything and she has this ruler just going to town on them. Yeah. It's a great scene, hilarious scene. It's it's great because one of them says something to get hit, they say something and then the other person says something gets hit and it just ends up going back and forth mm-hmm. until she's just holding the ruler between them and just waving it back and forth trying to yeah. whack him. Yes. <laughs> yes. Dan Aykroyd says a line that I did not know was a phrase in the 80s, but I hear all the time now, which is, fuck this noise. Fuck! Oh, I didn't hear that. Yeah, as he gets <laughs> up to leave, he goes, fuck this noise and leaves, which I was like, I had no idea that was a phrase that had been said at the time. I guess you're really up shit creek. Ow! Christ, Jake, take it easy, man. Ow! Ow! pretty much sets up the entire premise of the movie though mm-hmm. in that the orphanage owes back taxes and if she doesn't get five thousand dollars they're gonna have to close the orphanage yeah the church doesn't want to keep it open so they're not inclined to pay for it exactly so the blues brothers take it upon themselves that this is now their mission to get the five thousand dollars and they have to do it from how the penguin says they can't have their dirty money they have to do it and come back once they've redeemed themselves yeah you got to do it honestly. And so as they're walking out, we run into Cab Calloway, who is wearing the exact same getups that they are. And so we immediately realize, okay, this is the person who really influenced them growing up. Yeah, this is their mentor. Jake! Elwood! Curtis! Hey, oh, you look fine, man. Good to see you, man. Hey, buy you boys a drink? It's another kind of funny line that you, if you don't pay attention to miss, he goes, let me buy you a drink. And then they're in the cellar mm-hmm. with a drink that he already obviously has. So basically just kind of getting some exposition here, them talking about how much he was an influence on them, listening to music and playing the harmonica for him and whatnot. But basically that scene leads them to the next point on their journey, which is... Jake, you get wise. You get to church. Where we meet Reverend Cleophas James, who's actually James Brown. This is my favorite scene in the entire movie. And I know it comes very, very early in the movie. Mm-hmm. But just as a musician, this entire scene, mm-hmm. I love it every time. Every time I see it, it's my favorite part of this movie. And that's in a movie full of great scenes. Yeah, yeah, there's so many good scenes, so much good music. Before we get into like this big first musical moment, I want to say I don't know if I can think of a single movie that has a better soundtrack than this film. Yeah, you'd be hard pressed. There's some really good soundtracks out there. There's some ones that have like some, like a couple great songs, like The Bodyguard has a great song. Mm -hmm. Love Actually has a couple great songs. The Guardians of the Galaxy movie has multiple great songs, but none of them touch this soundtrack because every single song is just an R&B classic. Mm -hmm. So I would probably have to just rank 
the music in this film, not the score, but the soundtrack is probably the best compilation of any movie that, in, in my opinion. All right, so we're back at the church, and I'm not a religious man. <laughs> this scene does make me, like, feel something. Yes, it makes you want to go to church. That church, not any church. Yes. Just that church. Yeah. And I think I maybe I would be a religious person if I had that church in my life as a kid. If James Brown was your pastor? If James Brown was my pastor, and all those people were dancing and leaping, doing, like, the trampoline jumps, and it was that amazing. Well, well, well. Wonderful, fun, energetic song where just the whole congregation is starting to dance and starting to just have a good time. It's a big musical number. And not just dance, but dance in uh, perfect choreography. Yeah, in perfect choreography, just like I assume all churches do ever. Yes. (laughs) And this is also a scene where there's a great cameo that you probably wouldn't know if you didn't pay attention to it. Uh, there's during the song, there's kind of a woman who's kind of, she's not really doing a solo. Mm-hmm. She's kind of, she has like a soaring voice over it. That woman is Shaka Khan. Oh, I don't think I ever knew that. That's kind of like a little cameo. And a huge ray of God's light shines down from the heavens and beams down onto Jake Blues. And... Reverend Cleophas James is saying, do you see the light? The bear. The bear. Do you see the light? The bear. Do you see the light? What light? Have you seen the light? Yes. Yes. Jesus H. Baptist in Christ. I have seen this idea, this is how he's going to get the money cleanly to save the orphanage, and it's by use of the band. Now we have to start thinking about how can we get the band back together. So we leave the church in the car, listening to Soothe Me, great song by Sam and Dave, mm-hmm. and here they're starting to talk, trying to formulate the plan of did Elwood keep the band together, and he didn't because it's just everyone kind of drifted apart, and so how are they going to make this happen? And He runs through a red light, but it was a yellow light. He was correct. Mm -hmm. We get our first meeting of not really the antagonist, but like the cops who continually chase them throughout the movie. Yeah. And I like the cops. I I like both of the guys. Like, I don't root against them. Like, I think they're both for their role. I think they do a pretty damn good job as their cops, like very believable. And I like them. Yeah. They get pulled over and you're like, well, it was a yellow light and that is kind of ridiculous. And then later when we find out that, oh, you know, Elwood has a warrant out and or a suspended license and stuff, you know, they're completely in the right to chase after these guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They they're didn't do anything wrong. They were just doing their job. And yeah. They were... These aren't crooked cops in any way. No. They're doing their job. It's just unfortunate <laughs> they came up against these two. And at a time when they're obviously on a mission from God. So once they start going, I want to mention that the song switches from Soothe Me to Hold On, I'm Coming, which is a great car chase song. Yes. It just, it just works really well. And Jake is really pissed. He's going to be put back right back into prison when he just came out. And Elwood looks at him and he's like, They're not going to catch us. We're on a mission from God. That is the most quoted line in a movie chock full of great lines. Yes. So we have this first kind of ridiculous car chase scene, which escalates pretty damn quickly. (laughs) 
I kind of forget sometimes that it goes from them driving and then into a parking lot and then we bust into a mall on this first car chase. And I like the little scene right before they come in, which is someone in a toy store and he's holding up. I I think it's like a It's a it's a Grover. And he says, you want out of this parking lot? Okay. Would there be anything else? Yes. Do you have a Miss Piggy? Which is a throwback to the first scene was Frank Oz, who was the original voice of Miss Piggy. Exactly. And the car busts through and it gets ridiculously insane. Just their cars crashing through everything. A fun ass scene. Completely unrealistic because if someone drove into their cops would not follow them in for fear of hurting someone, but because the cop cars are sliding all around just as the Blues Brothers car is well, and they must have gotten some serious stunt people to be the pedestrians while these people were Mm -hmm. chasing each other through this mall of having to dodge vehicles. And and I like that you kind of briefly get a view of the chase from the cop car. Mm -hmm. And it's not the chase from the front cop car, it's the one from the back. So you can see the the cop car in front of them and you can see the the Bluesmobile in front of that. You really get a sense of how tight of a space they really are Mm -hmm. driving themselves through. I was thinking, damn, that's a wide mall to have them drive through it completely yeah but still yeah it is ridiculous there's so much destruction it all still kind of ties in with the fantasy stuff because no one gets hurt it seems like pretty much no one gets hurt in this movie or at least it's established that they get hurt Mm -hmm. until two people later on and i will bring that back up later yeah wild insane scene so much destruction no injuries except for people's watches <laughs> yes. Love the scene as they're driving through and they're just naming off stores. <laughs> pants and burgers. Yeah. Lots of space in this mall. Disco pants and haircuts. Yeah. Baby clothes. This place has got everything. Just hilarious little moments throughout this film, which is which is what makes it great. And they deliver it with a straight face, mm-hmm. which is what sells it. So then we get out of that chase scene, cut to downtown Chicago and the Peter Gunn theme, which is another great use of music. Probably the most associated song with the Blues Brothers. Yeah. But it's weird because it only really shows up in this kind of one section. I agree, though. Like, that's definitely the one that a lot of people associate with them. Yeah. When you think Blues Brothers, you think the doom, 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 doom. So we get to, this is to Elwood's house, and here we see a mysterious woman in like a pink Cadillac, played by Carrie Fisher, who is obvious, obviously Carrie Fisher, and, oh, okay, what she's doing, just waiting here. Holy fuck, she pulls out a rocket launcher. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to make a bold statement and say, I think this is Carrie Fisher's sexiest role. I always thought that she was gorgeous in this film. Absolutely. Yes. You know, metal bikini notwithstanding, her demeanor, her kind of, you know, I don't give a fuck attitude throughout the whole thing. You're drawn to this character because you want to know more, which you don't find out why she's chasing. Actually, you don't even know which one of them she's chasing until the very end. Well, you see, you do see in the rocket launcher, there's a quick cut of her targeting Jake. Oh, that's true. And so you establish that she hates Jake for some reason. That is true. So, yeah, so she shoots the rocket launcher, barely misses them. They get rocks thrown on top of them. They just kind of brush it off and walk upstairs. Nobody else around them is panicking or anything. The guy who's asleep on the stairs is still asleep on the stairs. Yeah, it makes no sense. And you're just kind of curious, what the hell was that? And you move on. That's that's just kind of how the scene works. Yep. Now we get to a line that might be my most quoted line. And it 
makes no damn sense, has no precedence, or comes back to us at any point. But it's as Elwood walks in. Did you give me my cheese wheels, boy? I say that line all the fucking time. I <laughs> love that line. And he just pulls out, he pulls a can out of, of Cheese Whiz and throws it to him, catches it, and the guy keeps playing cards. It, it, that was such an unnecessary scene. Like, there's no point to it, but I'm glad it's there because I love that line. Yeah, it is funny because it's after all of this stuff they went through, and you know nothing about this can of Cheese Whiz, that Elwood is a man of his word. He's an honorable man. Mm-hmm. Whatever mistakes he's made, he's an honorable man. And he says he's going to get you Cheese Whiz. He's going to get you Cheese Whiz. And so he does. He gets that man's Cheese Whiz. He's happy. Uh, and then they get into his apartment, which is the size of a not even my walk-in closet. Right. Uh, <laughs> at my place. But it's, yeah, super tiny. Trains going by. Another great just little subtle line of Jake asking, How often does a train go by? So often you won't even notice it. <laughs> yeah, there's just so many good lines in this movie. Yes. Uh, Elwood starts making his dinner, puts some toast. Dry white toast. Yeah. The next morning, Carrie Fisher is back. She must have realized that she didn't kill them. And she's there, and the cops know where Elwood is, apparently. And so they have tracked them down with the help of John Candy. They bust the door in right as Carrie Fisher sets off her C4 charges or whatever <laughs> explosions she got. Just, it just, this movie keeps escalating and yes. escalating and getting more ridiculous and more and more ridiculous. But you want to go on that ride. You yes. want to just like see how much more crazy it gets, how much more fantastical it's going to get. And the entire building explodes Mm -hmm. everything there is bricks everywhere and once again because they're on a mission from god you can assume that they are basically invincible at this point (laughs) at this point yes they brush off the bricks go along their way (laughs) we do see the cops aren't damaged they all start kind of get up and to get out at this time so this is why i i like uh the fact that we're doing the blues brothers and the a-team and that there's a theme with both of them in that even when bad things happen to people Nobody really gets hurt. Yeah. Which was a great thing, I thought. Yeah, both of those, absolutely. That does seem to be a theme, even though there's massive violence yes. in both of them. Yes. Both TV and movies. Yeah, no one, there's no blood, and no one seems to die. No one seems to die. Yes. Though I do believe someone dies in this movie later. Okay. So we're done with the destruction, and then we are off to go get the information on the band. And we kind of go to this lady's house who had, like, I guess, a boarding house or something mm-hmm. where some people were living. Just a fun little scene with just more subtle, great humor of they're asking all these questions, doing it very quickly. The lady asks, are you police? No, ma'am. We're musicians. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Love it. And she gives them some information about Murph and the Magic Tones. This is the majority of the group, and they kind of get them all in one swoop. Mm-hmm. They're at a terrible gig at the Holiday Inn. Uh, it doesn't take really much convincing to get for them to get the band back together. It's fairly fairly quick and easy. Uh, they're in a shit little the Armada room at the Holiday Inn. Playing some kind of not great sort of lounge Latin jazz type thing. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I want to, um, I want to mention something, because this is going to tie into our last episode. Two of the members of this band were in this section right here. And it's the guitar player Steve Cropper. And probably the bassist with the best name ever, Donald Duck Dunn. Donald Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper were members of Booker and the MGs when they Uh. recorded the song Green Onions, which we talked about in our last episode. 
which was uh, The Sandlot, where that song plays a big part. Mm-hmm. And I know that doesn't really make the two movies related, but I thought it was a good tie-in to, to, to mention that these are two of the guys who were part of that group. Does it also tie in that his name is Donald Duck Dunn and we did DuckTales? Huh? No, but... Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. That's a stretch. So we get Murph in the magic tones, but they tell them that we've got three more members who have such good gigs, there's no way that they're going to quit. And the first one being Mr. Fabulous, who is the head mater d' at Chez Paul, a French restaurant in downtown Chicago. Mm. This, I think is hilarious in the way John Belushi's performance and the and his creepiness. I wouldn't be shocked if he probably ad-libbed every bit in this scene. Right. So we yeah, so we get to the Shape Hall and Mr. Fabulous is shocked that they're there to try and get him. He sure as hell doesn't want to quit his job and they go sit down at the dining room table and order like everything expensive. Yes. They are so out of place. Which he knows for a fact that they cannot afford. But they know that he's such a nice guy, he will never call the cops on them. Yes. They use that to their advantage here. So they're ordering these shrimp cocktails, Dom Perignon. I love the line, wrong glass, sir. Wrong. And Elwood just shakes it, and it's a big-ass glass of sugar. And another cameo. Another cameo. Their waiter is Paul Rubens. Better known as Pee-wee Herman. Yeah, well, this had to be before Pee-wee's Playhouse came out. Yeah. So just like a fun little thing, you get Paul Rubens, who probably was just an upcoming actor at that time. So we're drinking this fabulous wine. We are tossing shrimp into Jake's mouth. <laughs> uh, and I believe they have the napkins just hang- tied into the shirt. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and they go to the next table, and he does his creepiest, like, Eastern European voice. How much for the little girl? The women. How much for the women? What? Your women. I, I, I want to buy your women, the little girl, your daughters. Sell them to me. Sell me your children. Mater D. Mater D. Love it. They know that they can abuse this. They will go for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every time that Mr. Fabulous is working, uh, unless he joins the band. And he, of course, because they're on their mission from God, which they said number the second time in this scene, uh, he gives up and he says, you got me. I'll quit this. I will join your band. So boom, we got Mr. Fabulous. We got two more to go. So after that scene, we're in traffic and we see this march going on. Who is it? The fucking Nazi party. Hi. Hate Nazis. The Illinois Nazis won their right to march, and so the Blues Brothers now are waiting in traffic, but they want to get moving on, so they step on the gas, and then over this bridge, the Nazis all have to jump off and go into the water, and they get pissed, and now we have another group of antagonists who want to chase the Blues Brothers down. So we've got cops and Nazis. Yep, right now, cops and Nazis are the two antagonists who want to end the Blues Brothers. And now we're cutting to uh, one of the greatest blues musicians of all time, John Lee Hooker, basically just to have a cameo of John Lee Hooker playing Mm -hmm. some music, playing the song Boom Boom. Love that song. transition because we're done with the nazis and now we are in downtown chicago where we need to go get some soul food (laughs) so here we are at the soul food restaurant owned by none other than the queen of soul aretha franklin yep 
who happens to be married, I'm assuming married or dating, Matt Guitar Murphy, and also employs Blue Lou, the saxophone player. Which is the last two members I believe they need. Yes. And she is so good in this movie, not just mm-hmm. not just for the singing part she does, but her acting in this movie is so good. You You believe that she's upset that they're trying to get her husband away from her. I just think she does such a great job in this movie. Yeah, I agree. So their order is a classic scene. You got any uh, white bread? Yes. I'll have some toasted white bread, please. You want butter or jam on that toast, honey? No, ma'am. Dry. Got any fried chicken? Best damn chicken in the state. Bring me four fried chickens and a Coke. You want chicken wings or chicken legs? Four fried chickens and a Coke. And some dry white toast, please. You all want anything to drink with that? No, ma'am. A Coke. She goes and tells the cook, who is McIntyre Murphy, they come out. Uh, he realizes who it is. I just want to know, what was the backstory of the four fried chickens <laughs> and a Coke? Like, obviously, it is something that McIntyre Murphy knows about. Yeah. I mean, is it just something as simple as that's what he used to eat? Mm-hmm. Was four whole fried... Like, the way he kind of looks fondly about it as he's looking up and realizing, oh, I know who these guys are. What is the story there? Yeah. So they just kind of all start embracing and he's excited and wants to get, tells them he wants to get the band back together. And he's like, no, don't you do it. My woman doesn't want me to do that. And then he's kind of fighting back because Matt decides like, oh no, I'm the man. I can make my own decisions. You immediately look at Aretha Franklin and and kind of think, no, that was a bad idea on your part, buddy. (laughs) Yep. Bad call, brother. (laughs) You just, you should cut your loss right now and just Get back to the kitchen. Yep, and she lets him know about it by starting uh, her famous song, Think. You better think about what you're saying. You better think about the consequences of your actions. Oh, shut up, woman. You better think, think, think about what you're trying to do to me, yeah. Think, 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 let your mind go, let yourself be free. Let's go back, let's go back. Just a fun little scene with her and their three backup singers who just happen to be sitting at the uh happen to be singing at the counter yep yeah there's, there's nothing ridiculous in that scene just kind of a fun little song and dance yeah at the end of it they decide nope i'm going with the band and so now we have everybody yeah so i want to ask you a question do you consider this movie to be a musical because the songs i don't know if the songs really because it really is in a musical the songs kind of either move the exposition or you know they kind of go through a scene and here they're really just songs Songs that are being sung. Yeah, but they are kind of replacing dialogue. Yeah, okay. And so I do, th- I, I mean, think, not the, the old landmark, not so much. Shake Your Tail Feather, really not so much. But like, think, think definitely this is. one definitely does just replace dialogue. And so I, it definitely has aspects of a musical. Yeah. So now we've got everybody and... There's a quick little cut to Carrie Fisher, who is prepping her next doomsday device, basically. <laughs> and there's really nothing special about this. We see that she's reading an instruction manual for a flamethrower. The only thing I wanted to toss out about this scene is I love the name of the salon that she obviously either works at or owns. It's called Curl Up and Die Hair Salon. <laughs> <laughs> You really don't need this scene for anything, but just another little, like, small, quick humor thing right. there that uh, just in multiple rewatchings that you probably would notice otherwise when you wouldn't yes. that I really like about this film. After that quick cut, we are now need to getting some new instruments, and we head over to the best 
music store in Chicago, apparently. Ray's Music Exchange, owned by no one other than Ray Charles. Cameo after cameo of great musician mm-hmm. in this film. Yeah. They have just a quick little you know discussion of, oh, hey, remember me? And there's a kid trying to steal a guitar. Yeah, kid's coming in, kind of sneaking, which apparently none of the other band members who are all around the store notice this kid coming in. Yeah. <laughs> and walks up and just kind of as as he's about to get to it, and the, and uh, I believe it's Jake and uh, Murph are talking to him, he just swings his hand up and fires what looks I, it looks like a 38 special or something like that. <laughs> and just you see these two wall, there's two holes in the wall, ding, ding, and the kid just kind of looking at him. And it's a kind of another one of those fantastical, almost supernatural moments where yeah. there's no way that he should be that good of a shot. Yeah, it's blind Ray Charles. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I'd trust him. Yeah. I'd give him a gun and let him protect my house. Yep. So they want to buy this piano, but it has no action in the piano. Ray Charles says, get out of my fucking way. I'm Ray fucking Charles. <laughs> and he starts playing Shake Your Tail Feather. Well, I heard about the fella you've been dancing with all over the neighborhood. So why didn't you ask me, baby? Or didn't you think I could? Well, I know that the boogaloo is out of sight, but the singer me shake your tail feather is probably my favorite dance and music scene in the film i always gravitated toward this song i just think it's it's a blast it's super fun yeah the dance scene probably is what does it you get the the entire kind of streets community comes together and starts doing all the dances that he's naming off as he's singing kind of makes you want to live in that neighborhood oh like i want to live in the neighborhood where everyone who's just sitting around and somebody plays something everyone just spontaneously gets up and kind of flash mobs as we would call it now yeah i've been to chicago i've not been to that neighborhood i am i gotta find where this is <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah so that I, that scene love it love that song that song has probably stayed on like my random party mix mm-hmm. pretty much since i've owned the song and if you you have to go back if you haven't go back and watch the scene and every time they show ray charles playing in the background murph the piano player playing tambourine and doing the weirdest <laughs> dance I think I've ever seen. Yeah. The only one who might dance weirder than him is Elwood. Well, yes. Because Elwood does some really weird sort of, it's all legs. Yeah. Like everything they do kind of is like all legs. And he kind of does this weird, like almost Charleston-like kind of knees coming in and out as he's you know playing the tambourine during the song. It is really weird. I don't know if that's how people danced in 1980. I hope not. But I definitely recognize, or I saw just how weird Murph looks in that scene one thing i never understood and i still don't understand why does ray want to take an iou as opposed to just having them pay for it right then and there well because or else you don't have a movie because then they don't have instruments i don't know never got it it just never made any sense to me it still doesn't make any sense to me just seems like a random throwaway line you could just like Honestly, I would just believe that they bought the instruments and just moved on. But whatever. Well, I mean, we've already established that they have no money. Yeah, but they don't ask for an IOU. He says, I got to take an IOU. Like, what What businessman wants to take well, an IOU? Well, I think he knows for a fact that these guys can't afford to pay them right away. And it's I guess it's kind of like putting it on like a credit. I just don't get it. But still, it's fine. I let it slide. Yeah. Uh, our next scene, Jake and Elwood got to go make a call to Marty Sline and... Back comes Carrie Fisher. We still don't know really anything about her, except for now she has a (laughs) flamethrower, and she sets it ablaze onto the phone booth 
that they are talking in, and for some reason the phone booth shoots up into the air. Well, if you it's it's sitting next to a gas tank. Okay, I forgot. So that. if you pay, yeah, if you kind of watch, it's like next to a gas tank. Why that would make the phone booth shoot straight <laughs> up into the air and not sort of explode to the side? I don't know. Uh huh. It's the supernatural here. They're on a mission from God. Yes, but why? She just drives off when it's shooting up in the air and not doesn't wait for it to land and see that they're alive and finish them off. She's a bad villain yeah. with that. She's, <laughs> she's just one of those people who just like, oh, I'm going to tell you my entire plan, basically, because there's no way you'll escape this. And then, of course, they escape it and mm-hmm. ruin the plan. She's that kind of villain where it's just like, I'm just going to trust that you're going to die from this and keep moving on. <laughs> Great little line of, hey, Jake. There's got to be at least $7 worth of change here. <laughs> I, I don't think I can speak enough to just the funny, little, subtle humor in yeah, this film. Yeah, the asides are almost what make the movie. Yeah, I agree. Next scene, they're driving around. They're trying to find a gig. They don't know what to do, and they basically stumble across Bob's Country Bunker, and Jake is basically going to bullshit his way in here. And that's kind of what he does. He just bullshits his way to the band, bullshits to the owner, saying that they are the good old boys who are supposed to be there, who very luckily got a flat tire and aren't there on time. But no one knows that, including Jake and Nellwood. But whatever. I mean, it's fantastical. You can kind of just assume God is on their side this entire time. Mm -hmm. So it, it works. I always, I it's a dumb little joke, but the the scene where they're talking to the the, the bartender with the crazy sort of oh, bouffant beehive yes. hair ass. What kind of music do you usually have here? Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western. Yeah, love that line. <laughs> Uh, another great line, just like it's just in the next cut. The band's starting to set up, and you get Blue Lou just looks up at the stage and she goes chicken wire when you realize that the whole stage is surrounded by chicken wire yeah and enter here in 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 illinois uh you get some redneck style you know country bubkins uh who we find out just in the next scene what the chicken wire is for i say they obviously get a little rowdy yeah they get a little rowdy they start playing their regular r&b hits and the audience hates it when they start with a great tune Turns off the lights, everybody's throwing bottles, I hate them, and they try and quickly figure out what they can play, and they remember Rawhide, I think it was a 50s show or something, Mm -hmm. wonderful theme song for that one. loves it and even more bottles start getting thrown at them (laughs) if this crowd hates you you get bottles thrown at you if they love you you get even more bottles thrown at you so yeah just a kind of a quick little scene the next song that they play is stand by your man uh which i think is tammy wynette i can't remember who does i think so i believe you're right that's not their best cover i will say yeah but it's it's great for that scene well and you know they cut to the audience the audience is obviously drunk at this point yeah the couples are all just kind of looking love lovingly at each other and they've obviously the band is obviously won over the audience at this point yeah you just kind of assume that they pulled some shit out of their butts and found some country-esque songs Mm -hmm. to play a full set. Uh, And then we kind of, we're done. We come back. We have basically wrapped up. 
and they're looking for the money for that gig and the band ends up owing money because they drank $300 worth of beer and the gig was only paying $200. Which even today, $300 worth of beer is a good bit. Yeah, yeah, they drank a lot of beer apparently and and in that day it must have been insane. They now have to get out of this tight spot. They start going to their car and they find an RV pulling up of the actual good old boys. Jake being the kind of quick-witted one that he is, pretends he is a uh, person in the music union, make sure that they can get temporary union cards, but just being a bullshitter. One of my favorite character actors is the leader of the good old boys, which is a guy named Chuck Napier. Yeah. You see him as a character actor in a lot of movies. He does a lot of voiceover. He's great in uh, Silence of the Lambs. He plays one of the guards in Silence of the Lambs that I think he's the one who gets his face taken off by Hannibal Lecter. And he was the voice of... A character from probably my favorite animated series, which only lasted two or three seasons, which was The Critic with John Lovitz. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big fan of The Critic. He did the voice of Duke. Oh, okay. He's kind of a a Ted Turner-ish kind of character. Yeah, kind of a Ted Turner-ish kind of guy. Um, He just, I love everything Chuck Chuck Napier is in, whether he's playing kind of a good guy or a bad guy or or an asshole or whatever. he He did such a great job. Basically, Jake is screwing everybody over right here just so he can try and get out of this bar tab. And now we have uh, our third group of people that now hate the Blues (laughs) Brothers and are trying to chase the Blues Brothers, which is the good old boys and the owner of Bob's Country Bunker. So we get yeah our next chase scene. This one ends pretty quickly as uh, the good old boys and Bob are trying to catch up and they pass the cops who are just kind of at a speed trap uh, i'm assuming and it's the cops from before yeah our reoccurring cops the blues brothers drive by them really fast the cops are oh shit like they're gonna go get them they pull out and they run straight into the good old boys and just kind of that chasing ends pretty quickly the blues brothers get away once again right. the one thing i was watching this movie again last night in preparation for this and something that actually bothered me about that part was that the cops pull out but they pull out right as the uh, RV is going down the road, mm-hmm. and so the cops actually hit the back of the RV. Yeah, it's really the cops' fault that, yeah. <laughs> that they got that they were in because they the whole thing like everything flips over and everyone gets out and the cops are holding them. They're like, "Boys, you're in big trouble." It's really not their fault. Yeah, they were speeding. I know they were speeding, but still, like, the cops were sitting in a place where they couldn't see anyone else was coming. So I really don't think it was the good old boys' fault. Okay. in this instance, yeah. fair enough. They're, the Blues Brothers are out of that scene, and we now move into, we meet Marty Sline in a slimy steam room. They're just trying to figure out what they can do to get $5,000, and they decide that uh, they can do, if they fill up the Palace Hotel Ballroom, which is somewhere north of Chicago, uh, a good bit, 106 miles north of Chicago, we find out. Yes. Uh, that's basically, that's all we set up in that scene. You know, another little funny moment of the band is in the wide shot. And they're all in the steam room together. That's what I like about the scene is is that everything is very close in throughout the scene. The close in the close ups of the Blues Brothers or just a tight shot of the three of them of Marty and the two brothers are talking. You know, you think it's just them. And at the very end, I think it's Jake says, all right, let's go, boys. And they, the whole thing widens out and the entire band is in there and everyone's in towels. It's the little subtle humor, mm-hmm. which I like. I tend to appreciate more subtle humor more than kind of upfront in your face. I'm with you. This movie does it just fantastically. So now we're 
kind of in the marketing promo scene. The song I'm Walking is playing, and they're just passing out the signs and trying to get everybody to come to the Palace Hotel Ballroom that night. They have the, an amplifier on the top of their car, just driving around everywhere. Just funny little quick scenes where they're just trying to promote what they're doing and just a lot of little humor. Kind of a pseudo montage. Yeah, pseudo montage. Just kind of, yeah, prepping for it. Uh, probably my favorite part is when they have uh, Ray Charles put up a sign and it's upside down because he's blind. <laughs> but, You're a horrible person, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I, I know this. Oh, blindness. Hilarious. But all of that driving around, what that does set up is that they run out of gas. And so now, oh shit, they're probably going to be late to the show. Mm. They have to push it all the way to this gas station, which coincidentally is also out of gas. And so now they have to wait even longer. They get Twiggy uh, pulling up for pretty much no reason other than, hey, here's a cameo from Twiggy, who is a famous 70s supermodel. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they finally get gas. Uh, Elwood is flirting with Twiggy somewhat successfully Mm -hmm. Uh, as they're finishing up getting everything filled up the palace hotel ballroom is chock full of people and they're running late and so curtis aka cab calloway decides all right well i can be the opening act and he gets them started with minnie the moocha She was a low-down huge And I believe this song was Cab Calloway's, like, main song. Yeah, that was his big hit. That's what he was known for. Uh, and so they're kind of like a little bit of a fantasy element to where they switch the second that they turn on this song and start playing it. They're all wearing like these white suits and it kind of like jumps into this big band looking scene Mm -hmm. compared to what they're all like actually wearing, which is just like their regular Blues Brothers outfits. It's another it's you know, it's another instance of the supernatural kind of coming into play, but it's sort of a visual take on this band is so good that they're just playing in like jeans. They look like, you know, Joe Schmoes when you kind of see them just as themselves. But they're so good that you can forgive what they look like. And, and this is sort of a visualization of wh- how it is they really – the audience reactions to that song is bigger than the audience reaction to the Blues Brothers later. Yeah, definitely. Even when they, when they win them over. Mm-hmm. Because the song is fun. You know, there's audience participation, which audiences love. necessarily always like an audience participation song i hate it when i'm at a concert and it's someone's like it's the band's biggest song and they just turn they start they're about to start singing it, and then they turn the mic and have the audience sing like the chorus and i'm just like fuck you i didn't pay to listen to this random fuckers sing the song like i want to listen to this band sing it and so i hate that right uh now th- it's it's a part of many of the moocher songs so it's okay in this moment yes but like when it's not designed for the song i hate it yeah i'm putting down the soapbox and moving back to blues brothers cab calloway is so charismatic 
He just, he draws you in and it's, it's almost where, and maybe this is just the musician in me. Every time they cut the, even though the song is still playing, every time they cut away from the band to show the blues brothers sort of inching their way towards the palace ballroom. Every time they do that in my head, I'm thinking, go back to the band. I, I just want to watch the yeah. band. I want to watch Cab <laughs> sing. Yeah. I want to watch what he's doing, even though they obviously extend the song so that you have these scenes. Cause the song, after a while you realize, wow, this song is going on for a long time and it's simply because they're cutting away to these extra scenes yeah so they're kind of sneaking in uh what i do want to mention is i've never known what an orange whip was yes and john candy orders three orange whips for them uh but orange whip is two ounces of cream one ounce of vodka one ounce of rum and four ounces of orange juice oh. uh that sounds delicious probably like a like an or like an orange sickle i'd try that but uh with alcohol i've never heard of an orange whip and like i never heard of it except for in the context of this movie yes and i've been drinking for 10 years now <laughs> According to the law, but actually probably for like 13 or 14 years. Never once seen an orange whip on a menu. Right. Or heard of it. But John Candy says, Who wants an orange whip? Orange whip? Orange whip? Three orange whips. That now brings to light the fact that these guys are on duty and drinking. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, it was the 80s. Yeah, it was. Yes, exactly. So in honor of John Candy, I will drink an orange whip at some point in my life. There we go. So the Blues Brothers sneak their way up onto stage. They have their opening music and their kind of their big opening scene of they have their briefcase that's handcuffed to Elwood, I think. Mm -hmm. And they kind of do this whole little obviously setup thing that they probably have done for all of their shows for like the past so and so years. And the crowd doesn't give one shit (laughs) (laughs) because they just came off of Cap Calloway. Yes, it's great because there is that silence of the song ends. And the, the Blues Brothers are kind of like down on down on one knee with their hands out, like jazz hands, ta-da, <laughs> yeah. and nothing. I don't even think there's crickets. A... I think it's just silence. Yeah, so they immediately just go into their next song. I want to mention that, well, first of all, it, to me as a musician, it was weird that the lead singer was doing the count-off. Uh. <laughs> God. That he does it from the position of where he's at, where he's just kind of frozen. And he, you can see on his face, he almost doesn't know what to do and just kind of goes, well, I guess I'll just count off the next song. One. In hopes that maybe they can win them over. Uh, And it does. uh, Not too long into the song. So you got somebody to love going. That song goes over well. Then they put on maybe is like the most well-known sung song by the Blues Brothers, which is Sweet Home Chicago. Come on. Uh, I feel bad for the audience. They paid and went all that way, and they got one Cab Calloway song, they got Somebody Love, and then they got Sweet Home Chicago, and then the Blues Brothers have to sneak out yep. <laughs> to, try, to try and get out away from the cops. Uh, I don't know if that was worth the $2 cover. Right. <laughs> well, especially $2 in 1980s. I don't know how much that is in uh, in today's time, but it's probably at least a you know 5 or $10 cover. So they are starting to leave, and they get a album contract they get kind of ambushed by this guy in the back yeah random dude kind of just randomly there 
It doesn't really comes from nowhere, but it's fine. Hey, they found their money. They are setting everything right. They take five grand with them to try and go pay off the debt for the orphanage. They say set aside some for Ray's music exchange and give the rest of the band. Did you think it was weird that he just happened to have $10,000 in cash? <laughs> this, this music recording, yeah. recording producer, whoever. He just happened to have an envelope full of $10,000 in cash as if he was anticipating, hey, if they're really good, I'll pay them. Or if he just walks around with $10,000 in cash all the time he happened to be the head bouncer there back in the 60s -hmm. uh and he knows a secret exit out of the tunnels and they they basically accept his deal and then head out i that's where i think is the moment where they kind of redeem themselves Mm -hmm. where it's okay that that's the money that is used because one not just do they just get the five thousand dollars they also get enough to pay off the IOU from Ray and enough to kind of help the band. So that's kind of the the redeeming moment for them. Yeah. They have the money now and they are making their way out and they go out of the tunnel and who is there? How does she know where this tunnel is? And like, and that they're going to be coming out at that moment. It doesn't matter. We have Carrie Fisher with like an M16 mm-hmm. just ready to unload on them. Yes. And uh, not a great shot. Oh, <laughs> No, she misses completely. You know, she, she's got a fully automatic machine gun in a small enclosed space. And as soon as she starts shooting, they dive for the ground and don't move. And she still shoots around them. Yes, she is not a good shot. But for me, like, I don't, I don't know. You kind of brought this up earlier, but I also want to throw it out there. Like, that scene in particular mm-hmm. is where I think she is at her sexiest. Like, she just... She looks very pretty, maybe because she's got a badass machine gun as well. But yeah, I think she's she's very stunning in this film. Yeah. But we finally get some discussion between her and Jake as to what the hell happened. And we find out that Jake, being the complete asshole that he is, left her at the altar. Yep. And they, it sounded like there might have been some implication that her family has some ties with the mob or something like that. And maybe that's how she's getting some of this because she talks about uh, her dad using, her father using some of his last favors. With a mob boss. Yes, so that kind of explains some of this shit as to why she's so angry Mm -hmm. and has this vengeance and how she can have some access to these guns and weapons. But Jake, being the great con man that he is, starts begging like a little bitch. (laughs) (laughs) But it works. And... And puts out, like, the worst excuses. It is not a convincing speech. (laughs) No. I ran out of gas. I had a flat tire. I I didn't have enough money for cab fare. My tux didn't come back from the cleaners. An old friend came in from out of town. Someone stole my car. There was an earthquake. A terrible flood. Locust. It wasn't my fault, I swear to God! It's a terribly unconvincing speech. Yes, but it's not until he he finally pulls off the glasses and you see his eyes and he keeps giving her the puppy dog eyes but he has to keep he keeps having to kind of reset yeah. so he he gives it to her and then he has to kind of do it again and then do it again until she finally breaks and it's like oh Jake she still loves him and how can you not love him because even though he's a con man I still love him <laughs> <laughs> so and I, another just a funny moment where he know that he he knows that he won her over and Elwood still kind of just down in the muck still. Mm-hmm. He basically tells Elwood that, you know, that they're good to go and he just drops her. <laughs> I love that <laughs> shot. The shot just like stays static on him and you just see Carrie Fisher falling out of frame and it's just like, oh, what a dick move. 
<laughs> but he knows that he won and he's such a good comment. He's just like, all right, I'm good. And he just keeps moving on. I got past this obstacle. Elwood walks by and just kind of like, take it easy. And so they get to the car and right before they start off on this final leg of their journey to get the money to the Chicago court municipal office, they say probably the most well-known line in Blues Brothers. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Great line. That's probably been in like almost every college dorm and like with a Blues Brothers poster. I know I had it in mine. Yep. So we're starting on the big chase scene and it goes through the night as they're driving back and we're kind of like entering into dawn. Mm -hmm. There's not so much to talk about other than it's just mad it's madness yeah the entire car chase scene is utter madness and it's crazy because uber unrealistic in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. you know the best part is anytime one of the cop cars crashes it's as if none of the other ones have seen it happen (laughs) and they come flying (laughs) over each other as if they couldn't stop they just go ramming into each other but yeah it's the culmination of the cops and the nazis and the country bumpkins are all chasing them at the same time well they they get chased by the cops and then when they finally kind of break away from the cops yeah that's when the nazis could jump you know jump in behind them and then you have that really weird scene at the end of an unfinished bridge yes where they and then they're way up in the air and somehow as he pulls it into reverse the front end bumps up and the whole thing like <laughs> yeah. does a backflip. The car yeah. does a backflip over the back of the Nazis and one manages to stop, but the, the first one just kind of takes off. And not only does it take off, it goes higher. Yes. <laughs> after, the, after the car takes off the bridge, it doesn't dive. It goes higher and up over building and then seems to fall straight down. Uh, physics is not what this movie is no. known for. <laughs> no. Proper physics. And that's fine. Uh, it just kind of gets crazier and yeah, more nuttier and nuttier. Uh, but those two people, we don't ever come back to it, so it's just a theory. But I think those people die. I think those two Nazis actually die from the massive fall, and they and they create a big hole in the ground, and they kind of you know have a line where he, one of them looks at the other and says. I've always loved you. Right. Even though we never see anyone die and there's it's not confirmed, I think I think it's safe to assume that those two Nazis who flew in the air are actually dead. I believe it. Amidst all the madness, the Blues Brothers get away from everybody and get to the municipal court building. And this is another scene where it's just things get escalated and crazier to the point of the Blues Brothers are barricading the doors. I love this scene. Like, this scene just makes me happy with how ridiculous it becomes where they barricade everything and they start going up to go find the office. And we now have cops coming. And then in comes military and military police. And in comes the SWAT team. And in comes firemen. And just, like, the entire city of Chicago is now amassed together to try and put a stop to the Blues Brothers. Yes. And it is funny because they come into this big building and they're 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 pushing over, you know, vending machines to block the doors and no one inside the building is doing anything. Yeah. And they, yeah. they run up to security guards and the security guards, you know, who you would think would take a look at this action and be like, I think something's wrong here. And then later when the firemen come, you know, take their axes through the door, 
the security guards don't do anything. They're just kind of there. No, nobody does anything. But it is it plays to the fantastical. Yeah, just more of the ridiculousness. One thing I do like is the juxtaposition of the Blues Brothers getting into the elevator, and they're just going up, and it's the girl from Ipanema, mm-hmm. you know, the classic elevator song playing, and it's just intercutting between the insanity that's outside of the cops and firemen breaking through the doors, uh, shooting open another door, and uh, SWAT teams doing hut, 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 and like just swarming all around the building. I associate that more with this scene than anything else is the, the SWAT team going hut, 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 Yeah, that's probably hut, is hut. the biggest like takeaway from this scene that I agree. But yeah, it's just kind of, it's oh, it works well with the humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of editing humor, which I love, uh, is the juxtaposition of the quiet, Girl from Ipanema Elevator and the insanity cacophony outside. They make it up to the court building. They do a little bit more barricading and they get to his office and back in five minutes. Yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> just another quick little humor scene where just like, oh, shit, they're never going to get it. And the guy comes out eating a sandwich and they get him just in time to pay him the money. And do you know who that man is? I do not. That is Steven Spielberg. No, it wasn't. It's Steven Spielberg in a wig. That's bullshit. He's credited. He's credited in the movie as the Clark <laughs> Cook County Assessor's Officer. I'm going to have to go rewatch this again. <laughs> I think it's him in like a wig and stuff, but it says that it's uh, Steven Spielberg. Oh, that's awesome. I did not know that. So they get it. They get the, him to sign it. They get the receipt. And then they're handcuffed. And a great shot of everyone pointing guns at the Blues Brothers. It's just a, it's a wide angle shot basically from high and you have everybody, the cops and the army pointing their guns. It's just a, I, I love that shot. Right. Cause you needed that many people to take down these two musicians. Exactly. Cause they were on a mission from God. Yep. And that's that. Uh, so then we cut to, they are now apparently the house prison band because yeah. that's a thing. You could kind of call and, this the credit scene really. Yeah, it's the, exactly. It's the credit scene. And I want to say I love movies that do this, mm. like these kind of ending credit scenes where it's still kind of a part of the movie. Yes. But they show and especially when they have like a bunch of cameos like the Blues Brothers has. Yeah. Where they just do this kind of stuff. Um, I think it's it's a lot of fun. And so they're playing Jailhouse Rock and they cut to, you know, everybody who was in the movie singing right. basically a part of it. And you kind of then you realize you know, if you didn't know who some of these people were, you're like, oh, shit, that was Carrie Fisher. Or, oh, shit, that was Twiggy. Or, yeah. oh, shit, that was Ray Charles or whatever. Um, and, yeah, that and that's basically what we end well, on. Well, right before we get to this, there's another cameo. In the jailhouse, the prisoner who finally gets up on the table and starts dancing mm-hmm. is a musician named Joe Walsh from the Eagles. Oh, I know Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He's the one playing. And Rocky Mountain So Wayne. he's the one who gets up on the table and starts dancing. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Man, yeah, there's just more and more. On that scene, you don't see his face as well, but right before that, there's another cut scene that shows him, and you can definitely see, oh, that's Joe Walsh. Okay, very cool. So, yeah, so we've ended the movie with, uh, you know, kind of being a recap of all the different people that we saw in it, and uh, what do you have a recap for on the Blues Brothers? You know what? I I can't say enough good things about this movie. It's fun. Every time I see it, it still holds up despite the dated look of the cars. And, you know, I mean, first of all, the music that they use, even though it's it's blues, it's timeless. Mm-hmm. 
it's all songs that everyone knows. And, and yes, they were probably closer to being more popular at the time this movie came out. But the songs themselves are timeless. Good music is good music and it lasts. I just can't say anything bad about this movie. I mean, I could nitpick little things here and there like, you know, we have a little bit. But there will never be a point in my life where I will turn down watching this movie probably. Yeah. It's just so fun. It's so funny. The jokes still land. You don't have to have seen the movie before to still like it. You don't have to be from the 80s to appreciate it. Younger kids, as long as they can pay attention to to (laughs) the subtleties of the jokes, which is something that I know doesn't happen. Um, I mentioned before that I used to teach a, a film appreciation class and one of the first little things i used to show that class was a scene from a movie called duck soup oh yeah yeah the marx brothers and though to preface the scene i would always explain to them listen this scene is hilarious but you have to listen to what he's saying because for you know uh, groucho marx that what he would do is he had these quick quips so anytime someone would say something he would say something back that was funny but it happened so fast that if you're just kind of zoning out and not paying attention uh, you won't get the joke, and it won't. You won't think it's funny. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, it's somewhat similar in this one, in that a lot of the best humor happens in a subtle way. That if you're not paying attention to it, it'll go right by you. Yeah, I completely agree. This film is one that I will watch until the end of time. I, like I said before, I've have seen it probably once a year for every year of my life since starting seeing this movie since when I was Mm -hmm. I don't remember when maybe 10 on TV this was probably gonna be the easiest decision that I know this one holds up out of like our entire ones that we will ever do in this entire podcast Mm -hmm. because it's got everything as long as you can appreciate music and I think this movie has probably helped us with appreciating other and older music and kind of has grown our tastes because it is just that good. It's that funny. The music is that perfect. It's a. It's one of my absolute favorite films. I would say it's probably. It's easily in my top twenty. It might be in my top ten. This movie has just meant a lot to me, and it's uh, it's timeless. I would agree. All right, so now we're going to talk about uh, our TV show for the for this episode, which is The A-Team. Again, not really a kid's show, per se, but something that we watched, especially with our dad. Something that was kind of a fond memory. There's, there's a few TV shows that I specifically remember him being the one who introduced us to. The A-Team being one of them. The other one was probably Star Trek The Next Generation. Mm-hmm. was one that he introduced us to or started watching because I believe that one came out in 88 or 87. And so we probably started watching it with him. But this one, I recently, and by recently, I mean within the last year, started watching the series because it was on Netflix for a little while. It's no longer there. But I started watching the series and I got through almost the whole thing. This, if you don't know what the A team is, shame on you. First of all, secondly, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a group of four guys who are ex military who were uh, framed for a crime they didn't commit and they escaped from prison and they find themselves now as soldiers of fortune. They get hired to kind of help people in need. They only take the cases of people who they think are well. One, they have to be able to pay, and two, they're people who deserve to be helped. So no, they're not cruel mercenaries. They're sort of guns for hire for the good guys. 
1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. I will say this about the show, in my opinion. It completely holds up. The jokes are still funny. It still holds up. The only thing you have to get past is kind of the technology of the time. Mm -hmm. Anytime they use a television or a computer, it's painfully obvious that this is from the 80s. Yeah, there's definitely some moments that are extremely 80s, and they're not kosher nowadays. Yes. Like, uh, so I watched a couple different episodes. I watched the first, like, two-part episode uh, that was their pilot, and then I watched episode two, or their next episode, which was the first one after the pilot, which they replaced the actor who did Face. Right. Uh, he was, the, uh, the pilot guy was not the same one as in the actual series, uh, and then I watched that, and then I jumped over and I watched one from season four, where they had Hulk Hogan uh, guest starring <laughs> in it. Uh, it's a bit of a ridiculous episode, but so I checked out those three, uh, and I think it's in episode one where Hannibal, Hannibal, who there's four main characters. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Hannibal, who is the leader, Face, who's kind of like a con man. Uh, good-looking con man, Mr. T, who's like a mechanical genius, but also big, angry... He's the muscle. ...hulking guy. He's the muscle as well. And then we have uh, Mad Murdock, who is uh, legally insane and a master pilot. He can pilot anything. In that first episode, they have Hannibal. They're kind of testing out this news reporter who kind of follows them, I think, in season one and partly into season two. Mm -hmm. And he... He loves playing dress up. He's like a cosplay enthusiast, <laughs> it seems like, because he has. You can he, tell through the series, Hannibal as the character. He's a wannabe actor. Yeah, he craves the the spotlight. He loves the attention. Mm-hmm. You can tell, like, he loves the attention that he gets from the the military cops who were chasing them throughout the entire series. He wants to be an actor. So yeah, so he does that in the first episode. They're testing to make sure that this news reporter is trustworthy, and he basically puts on a bad Chinese character, like a semi-mostly stereotypical Chinese character, where it's just like, okay, this is definitely a product of its time to an extent, where you can't make some of these jokes. There's also enough sexism where there's really no strong female characters every care every like female character there is pretty much just an object of affection for face right the good-looking guy and they're kind of damselly in distress quite a bit and they have very little use in the actual show but that being said i absolutely agree with you that from what i watched you know it has its shortcomings but it's a campy cheesy actiony show but it is fun to watch. Like, if this was on TV and they just had, had a marathon going on, mm-hmm. I would absolutely watch it. I don't know if I would go out of my way to, like, buy the DVDs and watch this for sure. Right. But this is a show that I could see myself just kind of binging and just realizing, yeah, you know what? This is just a silly action show, and I like it. It compares to a show that was probably still on at the time but started in the 70s, which was MASH. Mm. Uh, if you've ever watched episodes of MASH, there are some of that. It's a product of its time. There's a little bit of, you know, sexism and, and other stuff. But a lot of the jokes 
that are you know not really about any of that completely hold up. Yeah, and this show is still hilarious. I've gone back and watched episodes of Mash that I still think are funny, and it's the same way with the A Team. I can watch it. I can get through the, some of the campy stuff and and some of the dated you know technology and and stuff and some of the clothing, mostly the clothing that Mr. T wears. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't think Mr. T was really acting at all. Like, everything that I saw him, it was just like, yeah, that's Mr. That's T. That's just how he like, is. Like, every little bit was, that was Mr. T. Like, there's scenes where he's he's all about protecting the children, and then in the next scene, he's going to be, has to be back to his bad attitude self. Yeah. And it's just like, everything that I remember from Mr. T as a child was that. And I don't know, maybe if he would just became a caricature of himself, but... That's true. Like, it's hard to know whether or not the character informed the person or the person informed the character. But there are some like, funny moments with that where, you know, you get some of his bad attitude and juxtapose it with, uh, you know, how nice he is. He's really got a heart of gold. Mm-hmm. And then anytime they have to go flying... Uh, he is afraid of flying and he particularly hates Mad Murdock and is afraid of flying with Mad Murdock. And so they have to drug him every time that they fly. And it's just kind of funny, you know, having the big strong character having such a what's seemingly a silly fear. I think it's a great character choice because you, you for mm-hmm. every any, you know, you can't have any character without a flaw. Yeah. And having the biggest, strongest guy having a flaw being that he's afraid of flying is kind of a big thing. And I I thought it played really well. And, you know, it, it helps because it it's a vehicle for they have to figure out different ways of getting him onto the plane every time. Speaking of vehicles, the van. Yes. Love the van. I would love to own a replica van of that 1983 Chevy, I think it is. Never has a van seemed more manly than in this TV show. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, obviously some customization that was done to the van, so it, it was never a stock vehicle to begin with. But, I mean, it's a great vehicle for having to have film four guys together in a vehicle. You know, in a van, there's a lot of space, so you can do that. But I'll tell you what. The 80s, if they got anything right, it was iconic vehicles. Yeah, definitely. You have the van in A-Team. You have Kit in Knight Rider, the DeLorean, the Ghostbusters Mobile. Um, to a lesser degree, a much lesser degree, you kind of have the helicopter and the TV show Airwolf. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd agree with Airwolf. Which uh, I wouldn't say was not nearly as good as, as the A-Team, but it, it had its high points. But uh, they definitely got the vehicle part right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I've never wanted to own a van more in my life than any time I see that van. Yeah, <laughs> Definitely. One question that I pose to you is, and this is kind of a running, I guess, question in the show. Uh, it's it's unsure if Mad Murdock is faking it, just his insanity, mm-hmm. like how crazy and ridiculous he is, or if he's actually that crazy. What do you think? <sighs> Because I have some moral objections to them breaking out this guy who has a mental illness. Because <laughs> I think he's actually crazy. I think he's like legitimately he's some nuts. But like they broke him out of like this hospital and they're just kind of just using him for his talents. Even though the guy probably really needs some help. <laughs> I think there are times when he amps it up. Mm-hmm. It is hard to tell like what what is their intention with it. But I definitely think that there is something there. You know, there's there's some things wrong with him. Maybe not as much as he puts on, but does he probably need to be in the hospital? Yeah, probably. (laughs) Is he kind of appearing crazier than he probably really is? Yeah, I think so. Because he has some very poignant moments and very, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, very humanizing moments a lot in the in the series, and it's hard to say. It's it's really hard to say. I like to think that's a little of both. Yeah, I I think they're abusing him. Okay. 
but yeah. All right. Um, but still, still, even with that, I enjoyed the show and I could see myself watching more of this. I agree. It's a great show. All right, so now we're going to do our recasting segment, and because we talked about A-Team, we want to recast A-Team. I know that they just had a movie in 2010 starring Liam Neeson and Bradley Cooper and Rampage Jackson and some guy I don't remember, but it sucked. Yeah, it did. It sucked a lot. Yeah. And so we want to redo it, and we want to try and see if we can make a better casting than that film. And I believe we're only doing the four main characters, right? Because anyone else in that story is incidental. Yes, we're only doing the four main characters, even the female characters, which they would probably have. Right. But we don't really have a basis to go off of because there were really, unfortunately, no strong female characters in the show. So, yeah, we're just going to stick to the four main, which are Hannibal, Mad Murdock, B.A. Baracus, and Face. Let's start with Face. He's probably probably the least dynamic character who's just known for good looks. Yeah. I mean, he's supposed to be a con man, but he basically just uses his looks to con people. And in this series, though, he is a funny guy. He makes a lot of quips. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I went with, I struggled with this one for a little bit because I wanted to go with someone who could be funny, but, you know, obviously he's still got to have the face. I went back and forth on a couple of people, and I actually settled on who I think would probably make a good face man Tom Hiddleston okay yeah you know he's a good looking guy he can be funny but even like when he's playing a serious person he can kind of take the humor in it and I th- I think he would work really well in that role yeah I like Tom Hiddleston it's a good choice I went with somebody who I kind of just went for for looks he's a good actor I haven't seen him do so much comedy but he just kind of had the look I I do think Bradley Cooper has the good look mm-hmm. for face that they used in the 2010 movie, but I obviously wanted to stay away from that. Uh, I went with Jake Gyllenhaal. He kind of has the look. I don't love the choice. I think I like Tom Hiddleston better, but yeah. So I yeah. just kind of I just kind of threw him out there. Okay. Face face was one of my more toss out characters. I couldn't really right. I wasn't. I'm not happy with my choice. Yeah, I don't, so. I don't know if I like him in that role. That's fine. So let's move on to Mad Dog Murdoch who is nuts and crazy. I'll say I I had a hard time with pretty much everybody. Face, I just kind of threw out a name, but everybody else, I had some really tough issues trying to figure out who I wanted. Mm-hmm. And for Murdoch, it, you have to get someone who can be anything. Right. Because you, you don't, at any point, Murdoch will flip into like either another personality or something, basically, mm-hmm. to where he's just going to act nuts. And so I started thinking of who would be some... Just I try to think of acting prowess and who are some amazing actors in that kind of age range. And so I kind of thought of uh, maybe like Barry Pepper, who I love as an actor, or Ben Foster, who I also love. I think he's a great actor. And then I also thought, and I, I hesitate. He's 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 too old for this role. I would lo- I would probably go with John C. Riley hmm. if he was younger. But he's just he's a little bit too old than from what I want for from Murdoch right now. Okay. But I think he's got something because he can flip from you know he's done some very serious roles to some very ridiculous slapsticky roles. I think he could mm-hmm. he could make that work. I went with someone who I don't know if's perfect for this role, but I kind of just like him. And 
he was from Breaking Bad. He was the sidekick Jesse Bitch, and it's Aaron Paul. Okay. I, I don't know if he's perfect, but I I think he could make it work. Okay. Um, I went with someone who I knew kind of had the comedy chops, and it was also someone who that you know would could probably get picked. Um, and someone who, you know what, when I first saw them, I probably didn't think that much of them, but I went with Paul Rudd. Oh, oh, I like Paul Rudd. Yeah, that's the better call. <laughs> yeah, you win that one. Just because, I mean, he he's believable as a kind of a crazy person, mm-hmm. but he's got good acting chops, and he could he could make a switch if he had to. Yeah, I, he could definitely make a switch. You know who I, I thought for a little bit, just because he really is insane, and I was like, well, maybe he could work, is Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought, that guy is actually crazy enough that maybe he would be a, a good Murdoch. But uh, no, I like I like Paul Red a lot. I think that's a good call. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on to B.A. Baracus, Bad Attitude yep. Baracus, of uh, the iconic Mr. T. I mean, you will never remove Mr. T from this character. The problem is, is that Mr. T is the character. Yes. Whatever you want to call the character, it's Mr. T. So it's almost it's almost impossible to replace him because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really tough. It's it's hard to pull anything out of that character. You're just you're trying to just play a caricature of Mr. T when you're doing this role. Mm-hmm. And that's makes it tougher, probably harder for an actor to really want to do it. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why they went with Rampage Jackson, just because he kind of has the look in that last movie, but he didn't have the acting chops. Now, granted, Mr. T didn't have too many great acting chops, but he pulled it off. Yeah. Like, I, I liked him. He was believable. So who did you pick? I picked, and I was trying to think of people who, again, just looked the part mostly, I would have really liked Kimbo Slice, who was a uh, MMA artist, but he's also dead. So uh, he died last year, so I couldn't do it. I think he has a perfect look for it. Very menacing. Right. We talked back in the uh, Thundercats episode about Terry Crews, and we even kind of brought up, you know, he kind of has that Mr. T feel. Mm -hmm. And he probably would be a good choice. But since I used him for Panthro in that one, I didn't want to use him again, honestly. So instead, I went with another... A uh, black actor who's got a big build. I think he's a little bit older than some of these other guys, but I think he would pull it off. He's got a pretty good look, and that's Michael Jai White. Okay. Uh, he played Spawn. Uh, he's just kind of like a big one, a big guy. I think he's around, I mean, he's 6'1", but he's got a really good build to him, so I think he would be a good call. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I also, at first, kind of went to Terry Crews, mm-hmm. but ultimately decided that I wanted to go go with someone else. I went with someone who I think could pull off the look, has good acting chops, and I went with Mike Coulter, who's playing Luke Cage. No, I I put his name down as well. Uh, I think that's a good call. Yeah, I just like him in that role. I think he could do it. Obviously, it's going to be really hard to replace Mr. T in a role that is Mm -hmm. basically Mr. T, but I think Mike Coulter could bring a lot to the character and could uh, probably make make it his own, and I could see him sporting a mohawk. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he would look good in a mohawk. But, yeah, I think Mike Coulter is a good call. I definitely um, thought of him as well. Mm-hmm. And now we come to the leader of the group, Hannibal. Uh, he is our dress-up extraordinaire. <laughs> he uh, is a little bit older, a little bit more experienced, but also a badass. He's got plenty of fight scenes. Ultimately, what it came down to, I imagined multiple different actors with a cigar in their mouth saying, 
I love it when a plan comes together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, I, I had that's, I had to keep looking into my imagination being like, well, what does this person look like saying, I love it when a plan comes together with a cigar in her mouth? What does this person look like saying that? So I want to throw out just a couple names that I thought of. I thought George Clooney. Mm-hmm. He's got like the look. He's a little bit older now. Similar with Bruce Willis, possibly. Samuel Jackson came into my head because mm-hmm. with Nick Fury, he's already playing a very something similar. Yeah. And I think he would do a pretty good job, actually. Brian Cranston, possibly. Okay. I just ke- I just kept coming out names. Yeah. Um. It, ultimately, the two names that I came down with that I think I like the best are Ed Harris and Michael Keaton. Okay. And I ended up picking Michael Keaton just because from seeing him in this last Spider-Man Homecoming, I think he can look fairly menacing, but I know as an actor he can do some comedy stuff as well, and he can kind of be all over the place. And when I just put a cigar in his mouth and made him say, I love it when a plan comes together in my head, Michael Keaton was probably the best. Okay. Unless you added unless you added motherfucker, uh, and then it would be Samuel <laughs> be Jackson. Sam Jackson. Love it when a plan comes together, motherfucker, then it's Sam Jackson. Yeah. But, but Michael Keaton is my call. Okay. So last night... So we're kind of getting ready for bed. I'm I'm discussing this portion with my wife, uh, in, by kind of who I was casting, who I, in my head I was casting, and I I had picked someone that I wanted to go with someone unexpected, but and I'm not gonna say who it was I picked, other than it was somebody who you probably wouldn't have expected, and they're not a that not a fairly big name actor. They are on a very big TV show right now, so you'd know who they are. But ultimately, it was actually my wife who came up with my choice because mm-hmm. i said well i'm thinking about this guy and she goes you know who you should pick kurt russell oh okay yeah kurt russell's a good call because he's he's around about the right age now he can pull off the sort of silver fox thing that george papard had going on yeah i can totally see him with a cigar in his mouth yeah i don't know if his voice has as much weight as maybe a michael keaton mm-hmm. but He's got the attitude. Yeah, he definitely has the attitude and the presence. And Hannibal is kind of a comedy character. He's always making jokes, always laughing, and I can totally see Kurt Russell in that role. So I, I have to, I have to give props to my wife because she was the one who really kind of came up with the suggestion. But my suggestion or my pick for this uh, for Hannibal is Kurt Russell. Yeah, I like that. That concludes this episode of the Blast from Our Past podcast. Please join us next time where we review Flight of the Navigator, The Reading Rainbow, and cast our thoughts on a live-action Teen Titans. And please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions or any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like for us to review as part of your childhood, you can reach us at blastfromourpast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at at blastpastcast. That's at blast past cast on both facebook and twitter so until next time i'm john and i'm adam and thanks for joining us see you next time